Welcome to the Life of Christ, Series 6. This is Lesson 5. We began uh, last time looking at the law regarding adultery, and um, that, that was on page 13. So what I'm going to do is, rather, I, I can't start in the middle. Um, I'm going to go back to that page, just read the scriptures that this refers to. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But he said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And uh, we went and had a look at several things. We got to a place where it was, um, I don't know whether I actually gave you this um, quote from Leon Morris or not. But I'm going to begin there. Leon Morris gives us a glimpse of what was going on at the time. The reason why Jesus actually said this, when Jesus taught, and in doing so he helps us understand why Jesus said what he said. I'm on page 15. He writes, in the ancient world generally, it was held that a married man could have sexual adventures as long as he did not involve a married woman, which would mean violating the rights of her husband. A woman, however, was expected to have no such relations. She should be chaste before marriage and faithful after it. The command Jesus cites makes no distinction. According to Jesus, people of both sexes were to remain faithful. Now, I'm, I'm kind of racing through this because we've already studied this, but for those that are just doing the life of Jesus, this is the only chance they're going to get to, to hear all of this. So, like I said, I'm putting the, the running shoes on here, um, <laughs> but I will slow down here and there. So, following this extraordinary revelation, that as soon as, as you look to lust in the eyes of God, you have already committed adultery, Jesus now goes on to give us this solution to the problem by saying in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29, now don't take this literally, okay? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you, to, for, for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Or as Matthew chapter 18 and the latter half of verse 9 has Jesus saying, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Alright, so looking at Matthew 5.29 a bit closer, notice how Jesus especially mentions the right eye. The reason for this is because of its importance. I'm over the page. Leon Morris explains that the right eye was thought of as especially valuable. A warrior would be gravely handicapped if he lacked sight in this member. In short, what Jesus is saying here is that it is far better to lose even the most valuable member of your body. And this is, like, this is what he means. Okay, This is the spirit of what he's saying. That it is far better to lose even the most valuable member of your body if it means saving your whole body from being cast into hell. Or as Matthew 18 and verse 9 says, thrown into the fire of hell. So obviously Jesus is speaking figuratively, since he knows that sin is in the heart. Remember that again? Amen? And plucking out the right eye doesn't guarantee that the person will not sin with the left one. Amen? Alright, okay. Therefore, as the Spirit-Filled Life Bible points out, Jesus does not prescribe literal self-mutilation, but a rigid moral self-denial. In other words, the same effort or the same tenacity that it would take for you to say, I'm pulling out my eyes, so to speak, is that tenacity that you need to say, I'm not looking. I'm not going down that road. Amen? Okay. William Hendrickson in his commentary says that the general meaning of the passage then is this. Take drastic action in getting rid of whatever. I love this, by the way. Okay, He's, uh, Let me read it again. He says, take drastic action in getting rid of whatever in the natural course of events will tempt you to sin, into sin. Did you get that? Okay, good. 
He says, even if that means going on a, a visual fast, where you choose to divert your eyes from anything that may lead you to sin. I really like that. Amen? But Jesus isn't finished yet, <laughs> because he goes on to point out that in, in the very next verse, that just as the eye is the gateway through which this sin enters in, the hand represents the instrument through which this sin finds expression. And so he says in Matthew 5 and verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you uh, that you, again, says the same thing, that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So on one hand we have, the eye represents your thought life. Your mind and your thinking, your imagination. The hand represents outward action. What you do on the outside. Do you understand? Because that's kind of the two spheres we live in. The thought life and then the things that we actually do. Amen? Okay. So once again, just as you would... Uh, excuse me. Just as what you look at can send you to hell, so can what you subsequently do with your hands. With the Apostle Paul, particularly quoting Isaiah 52.11, saying in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. This follows what uh, the Apostle Paul already said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, and that is, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So again, we, what we're seeing here is, we need to understand that a price was paid for us, amen, and that we need to glorify God in every area of our life. And that's in our thinking and in our outward actions as well. And it's so important that we do so. God holds us responsible for what we look at and what we touch. So much so that in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, it actually says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He shall receive blessing from... That's ladies too, by the way. Okay, uh, He or she shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. I want you to notice the two things there. He, who has a, he or she who has clean hands and a pure heart. It really should typify the body of Christ. You know, in all that we do, those two characteristics should be things that people look at us and say, that's, that's the body of Christ. Sadly, not so today. Anyway, now looking back at Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, one last time, we can summarize everything we've learned in the following way. First, this life doesn't end here. There is a big key. Amen? Okay. Because, see, just two seconds of preaching. Um, one of the things is that, you know, uh, people used to think, well, we're here for you know, a certain amount of time, make the most of it. Because when you're dead, you're dead, that's the end of it. You know, lights go out and that's the end. But the Bible tells us something totally different. And in fact, the reason why we should do, you know, why we, we live maybe sometimes a sacrificial life, because it has consequences in the next life. There is a next life, it doesn't all end here. Amen? And so as Christians, that's something we, we look forward to in our, you know, sacrifice or in whatever we do as unto the Lord. That may be uncomfortable. That may be, you know, other people are just doing stuff and they think they're getting away with it. And they're saying, you're wasting your life, you know what I'm trying to say? Amen. And you say, no, but, you know, God sees. And they say, yeah, that imaginary thing. No, God sees. God knows. And one day, that imaginary thing is going to be judging you. Anyway, so, <laughs> um, all right, that's enough preaching. Let's get back to this. 
so first again, this life doesn't end here. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there is an afterlife. And we are all going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. That being the case, we should aim to do everything possible to make sure that we make heaven our home. Second, nothing no matter how precious they may seem at the moment, such as eyes and hands, should be allowed to jeopardize our future glory and destiny. Now, you know, that can, I can extend that out to other things in our life. You know, anything that draws you away from God, anything that, that allows the enemy to work in your life. Do you understand? You need to get rid of those things. Amen? And the, the third thing is, he says sin, excuse me, I've, I've said here, third is sin uh, being a very destructive force must not be treated lightly. It must be put to death immediately and decisively at every turn. I couldn't express that any more strongly than that. Okay, let's move on to the next thing. The law regarding divorce. So following the law of adultery, obviously, okay, <laughs> Jesus goes on to address the subject of divorce with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31 going on to say, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife or literally releases his wife, sending her away uh, in a divorce, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this may seem pointless, but we'll see why in a minute. Alright, first of all, it must be understood that unlike the other passages in this section, Jesus is not dealing with a specific command of God. Now this is really important that you understand, okay? He's not dealing with a specific command of God, because he is now dealing with something that was going on in that time between Jewish men and Jewish women. This is why it is so dangerous to apply this to our culture today. And sort of say, well, this is what Jesus said. This, was, this is the ultimate final word on divorce. This is everything that is to be said about divorce is not the case. Because the Apostle Paul talks about divorce somewhere else as well. And, and if you were to uh, compare what he said to what Jesus said, it, you would you'd be thinking, well, hang on a second. Now they're contradicting each other. And why people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. It actually doesn't. You need to understand why it was written, to whom it was written. Amen. And context is very important. So right now, I really need you to understand that this is the Gospel of Matthew, written to the Jews. Do you get it? That's why Luke's Gospel, when, we were, when, we were looking, when you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, remember some of the verses that we looked at this time around, we included Luke's Gospel, which was to the Gentiles. And that was really different. Amen. Because the Gentiles have a whole different view on things, and they don't have some of the issues that we have. You know, with the Jewish women, for example, they couldn't work. They wouldn't be taught anything. You know, the boys would go to synagogue school. You know what I'm trying to say? They, they, you know, all they were trained to do was be housewives, basically. Which is, which is a little contradictory when you read the you know, woman in Proverbs, who does all these things. You kind of think, how come that didn't translate down? Because religion took over. That's how it was meant to be, but religion took over. And Jesus came back to bring the Proverbs 31 woman, I think it's Proverbs 31 woman, back in. Amen. Now, for this time, so I really need to, to clarify this, for this time, for the situation they were facing, this is what Jesus is talking about. Okay, so don't apply this across the board to everybody and their grandmother. Okay. Alright. So... <laughs> So again, I've, let me reread this. First of all, it must be understood that unlike the other passages in this section, Jesus is not dealing with the specific command of God, but with the practice of divorce between a Jewish man and his wife, and the way it was regulated in the Mosaic Law. 
Okay. In fact, the term certificate of divorce, according to Leon Morris, actually means relinquishing rights commonly used for divorce, the giving up of one's claim on a wife. Can, I, can you go back for a second? Can you look at verse 31 again? I want you to see something that is absent there. Notice how this verse is written and who this verse is written to. Jesus says, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife. I want you to notice it didn't say whoever divorces her husband. Did you get that? So this is aimed specifically at a Jewish man. Not even a Jewish woman, a Jewish man. That's why I said you've got to really read this. It is very specific. It's to a man, it's to a Jew. It's to a Jewish man. Okay, now let's continue. Otherwise you're going to miss something here as well. Because you know, people otherwise read this and the women read this and they go, Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. It's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you Jewish? No, not last I checked. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you need to understand this. If you're not Jewish, this doesn't apply to you. I'm just saying. Now, yes, it applies across the board for what it's saying in general, but this is something else. So please follow. All right. Therefore, it is served, listen, it is served, this certificate of divorce, okay? It is served to pre- protect the rights of the wife and, uh, and allowed her to marry someone else. Did you get that? Morris goes on to explain why by saying a a capricious, impulsive, or unpredictable husband could not drive her from his home and afterward claim that she was still his wife. He must give her the document that sets out her right to marry someone else. Did you get all of that? Okay. However, as is often the case, over time, what God originally designed to be a blessing to the woman had degenerated to the point where men were now using it to divorce their wives for the most ridiculous reasons. With Leon Morris saying that the school of Hillel this is okay, permitted a man to divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. Can you believe this? This is like the crazy laws they made for the Sabbath, you know? And Rabbi, this guy... Akiba, I think, allowed divorce even if he found another fairer than she. So you, can you understand why Jesus is saying, listen, we got to stop all of that. Okay, she spoiled her dinner, you don't divorce her? You kind of go, this one's, you know, this model's getting old, I want a you know, newer model, better not. Are you getting where I'm coming from? Okay, I'm trying to be tasteful here, alright? Okay. That's the reason Jesus specifically says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife, notice again, whoever divorces his wife. Not her husband, his wife. Okay, For any reason except sexual immorality or fornication causes her to commit adultery, or literally maketh her an adulteress. Alright, we're going to talk about all that in a minute. Can you all remember this, or do I need... I, I, I'll go through it. Okay, first of all... <laughs> Sorry. It must be made clear that this is no way a, a detailed description of all the reasons why you can and cannot get divorced. I've said that. Okay, amen? It is simply Jesus' way of addressing the fact that marriage was to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman. Sadly, not in Australia anymore. Anyway, and not to be dissolved lightly. All right. In fact, Leon Morris says that Jesus lays down the highest standard for both sexes. Divorce might happen, but it was not meant to be. Marriage is to be for life. Now, you know, don't get 
uh, under condemnation over this thing. Okay, this is this is talking about what generally should happen. I have seen marriages that I think, dear God, it's better if they were divorced. Let me just say it out. I'm probably going to get hassle over this, but never mind. I'm just going to say this because you know we are living in a fallen world. And I don't know why people don't get this. They don't get it that, okay, in a fallen world, you can make bad choices. We're not living in a perfect world. So you make a bad choice. Does that mean you have to live with that bad choice for the rest of your life? Miserable. When the whole point of marriage was you were meant to have a help, not a hindrance in your life. Are you all with me? Amen? And not everybody gets it right the first time around. i got to admit, man. I mean, because I just sort of think, you know, the chances of getting it all right. There's an enemy out there that is constantly working at getting things, helping us to get things wrong. Alright, that's why Jesus begins again by saying, But I say to you, indicating once again that he is in direct opposition to the scribes and Pharisees' interpretation and application of the Mosaic law regarding divorce. Because according to him, I'm on the next page, the primary reason for divorce, which he approves of, should be when sexual immorality is present, which is literally defined as homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and prostitution. And in fact, all sorts of sexual sins. However, if the husband just wants to get rid of his wife, for all the wrong reasons, then according to Jesus, he is causing her to commit adultery and therefore he will literally be judged guilty of turning her into an adulteress. Now, in fact, William Hendrickson in his commentary points out that the Greek, by using the passive voice of the verb adulteress, states not what the woman becomes or what she does, but what she undergoes, suffers and is exposed to. Do you understand? In, okay. Alright, because again, if he kicks her out for any other reason than this, if he just says, I don't want you anymore, okay, you burnt me eggs, whatever, okay, and just throws her out and doesn't give her that certificate of divorce, then she is out there as a married woman committing adultery. Do you all understand? She can't find anybody else, she can't do anything else. She's just trapped now. Which is why Jesus is saying, give her that certificate, do this right. But don't just do it because you just want to get rid of her. Are you all getting this? Okay, I, I know it. Okay. Therefore, Leon Morris says that a man who divorces his wife, and thus in a Jewish situation, notice again, Jewish, okay, compels her to marry someone else in first century Jewish society, how else could she live, okay, makes her an adulteress. That's the reason Jesus goes on to say in the latter half of verse 32, specifically addressing the man who might want to take advantage of a situation by forcing her to marry him, and says, and whoever marries through coercion, I've written in there, okay? A woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now you really need to understand that this is somebody taking advantage of somebody that has been thrown to the curb. That has no other way of living. And says, well, I'll come and rescue. And I'm, I mean, I'm talking about not a nice white knight. I'm talking about a sleazy person. You all getting me? Okay. If it's a knight, well, let's go, okay? <laughs> but if it's some little sleaze and you're thinking, oh dear Lord... And it says, well, you know, one of those people that says, well, how else are you going to look after yourself? Nobody else is going to take you in. I'm your only option. You know, those are lies. Amen. So it is vitally important that we understand that Jesus is not saying here that every man marrying a divorced woman is committing adultery. Did we all get that? Okay. Only those who take unfair advantage of a bad situation and use coercion to force someone into doing something they really don't want to do. Alright, therefore, in his commentary on Matthew 5.32, William Hendrickson translates and interprets the words of Jesus in the following way. 
Wow, we almost got through that. Okay, Whoever divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unfaithfulness, must bear the chief responsibility if as a result she, in her deserted state, should immediately yield to the temptation of becoming married to someone else. The erring husband should be given an opportunity to correct his error, that is to go back to his wife. This also explains the closing clause according to which anyone who rushes in to marry the deserted wife is involving himself in, hence, is committing adultery. It was thus that Jesus counteracted the looseness in morals prevailing in his day. Did you get that? Okay, that was, that's a key statement. The more we study Christ's teaching as presented to us in this passage, the more we begin to appreciate it. Here, by means of a few simple words, Jesus discourages divorce, refutes the rabbinical misinterpretation of the law, reaffirms the law's true meaning, scorns the guilty party, defends the innocent, the male then the female, okay? And through it all, upholds the sacredness and inviolability of the marriage bond as ordained by God. I think that was really well put. Amen? Okay, off, on to oaths. That's not oaths in the microwave, that's oaths. So, okay. <laughs> Alright, so... Following adultery and divorce, Jesus now goes on to talk about oaths and what we would commonly refer to as keeping your word. That is a big thing. And says, beginning in Matthew 5.33, he says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, some people have, have connected this to the previous passage. You can't do that. This is not about that. See, because you know there are people that use the Bible for, you know, um, for, for their advantage, to their advantage. That's what I'm looking for, okay? Some people use the Bible to their advantage. So what they say is, see, notice if you give your word, you know, when you say, I do, see how they use this? Okay, well, you should never break it. Right after Jesus said, you know, you can't get divorced, by the way, and blah, 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 which then contradicts this one. So this is a whole another area that we're looking at. It has, it has nothing to do with marriage. It can be used to a degree to that, but that's not what it's talking about. Amen? Okay. So I want to make that really clear. So he says here again, he says, you, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord, indicating the importance of respecting sworn testimony. This is derived from several Old Testament scriptures, beginning with Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12, where God himself says, do not swear falsely by my name. Saying in effect, God is my witness that I'm telling you the truth when you lie. Okay, you know how people say that? As God is my witness, yada yada. <laughs> and then what comes out is lies. Okay, he's saying stop doing that. And he says, so do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay, in addition to this, when it comes to actually performing your oaths, and doing what you swore to do. Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 says that if a man makes a vow to the Lord, I'm on page 21, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Isn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful if people just did that? Amen. You know, I, I think if we took more responsibility in doing what we say, we'll say less. Finally, 
with regard to the manner in which you are to keep your oath, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in doing whatever you promised Him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows. Boy, I tell you that the number of Christians that said, now Lord, if you get me out of this, I will. And then all the dot, dot, dot that follows usually doesn't happen after they get out of it. Because there's no more pressure. <laughs> no? Okay. But I want you to notice, it says, for the, Lord God, for the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill your vows. If you don't, you will be guilty of sin. Or using the phraseology of the interpreters, you shall not break your oath, but you shall keep your oaths you, you have sworn to the Lord. All right. In each of these scriptures, the emphasis was on being truthful and keeping your word. And most importantly, as William Hendrickson puts it, the absence of falsehood and deceit. The absence of falsehood and deceit. However, instead of oaths being used as a means of assuring others of your honesty and commitment to do what you promised or swore to do, it had degenerated into something that people were using to deceive others with. So this is where the problem was starting. People were getting to the place where they were using oaths, and we're going to look at this now in all sorts of ways, they would swear on different things, to try and, uh, I guess, bolster up their word. Listen, your word should be enough. If you say... This is, this is what happened. People shouldn't be looking at you going, I don't know what, what you're saying. It's true. Even if it's something ridiculous. Do you know why? Because if you're known for your honesty, then what they're going to say is, we know that this person always tells the truth. You know, if they said, it must be so. Yeah, but it sounds ridiculous. I don't care how it sounds. If they said that's what happened, that's what happened. Should be people's response. Amen? And we should be working towards that. And, and anyway, amen. I'm going to say in Jesus' name, Amen. <laughs> okay, wouldn't that be wonderful? All right. In fact, in his commentary, thank you, Leon Morris says that the things had become so bad in Jesus' day that the prevailing thought was that a lie between people did not concern God, whereas if the divine name were invoked, then His dignity and honor would be at stake. Therefore, only in those circumstances would the oath need to be kept. As a result, watch this, people began manipulating oaths that would avoid the mention of God's name. So that if and when they decided to break it, neither God nor they would be held accountable. As if. Are you getting this? So, but what they didn't realize was no matter how clever they were, any kind of deception that takes advantage of others is displeasing to God. And why the latter half of Proverbs chapter 19 verse 9 says, He who pours out lies will perish. Amen. Therefore, in relation to oaths, whenever anyone decided to engage in any kind of trickery or deception, they were actually sinning. And why God says in uh, Zechariah chapter 8, and the latter half of verse 17, do not love uh, a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. So this is something that the Lord really hates. When people just use oaths to lie. They go into a situation ready to deceive someone. And they've crafted their lie. Do you understand? In an oath. Okay. So it is with all this in mind, and especially in the light of what was going on at the time, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, But I say to you, do not swear at all. See now, <laughs> okay. People have read that and said, That's it, I'm not, swear, I'm not using another curse word ever again. Uh, by the way, don't. But, okay. This is not what he's He's not talking about swearing like we, we talk about swearing today. He swore on the phone. You know what I'm trying to say? It wasn't like that. They talk about literally swearing about, you know, swearing to something. 
Are you all with me? And when he's saying here, do not swear at all, he's not saying you can't give your word. He's saying don't do it in such a way that you are engaging God or something over, you know, beyond yourself to get people to believe you. Amen. So to clarify what Jesus said to his disciples, do not swear at all, Leon Morris writes, he, Jesus is saying in the strongest terms that those who follow him must speak the truth. They must never take the line that only when an oath is sworn need they be truthful. <laughs> okay. In light of this, it is also crucial that we don't misunderstand and misapply this scripture, thinking that Jesus was absolutely forbidding oaths, of any description under any circumstance because in the very oh, excuse me in this very gospel we find Jesus honoring the oath he was put under with Matthew Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63 and 64 saying but Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him I put you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God and Jesus said to him it is as you said up to now Jesus had said nothing but when put under oath he honored the oath and so was complete, uh, compelled to answer. It was the last thing he wanted to do because he knew it would end badly. And it did with verses 60, and we'll finish here, 65 through 67, saying, And the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror, shouting blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have, uh, you have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He must die. Then they spit in Jesus' face. This is ridiculous. This is not how a cult works, by the way. And hit him with their fists. This whole thing is a miscarriage of justice. Anyway, when we get there, we'll look at it in more detail. All right, for now, let's take a break. And we'll come back for the next session in a few minutes.